Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series, giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. former president of the Compliance Institute and a compliance professional for over 20 years. And it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. Now, the modern business vocabulary is littered with two, three and four letter acronyms. And we in compliance are familiar with AML, DP, ESG and of course, GDPR. As risk managers, these are our bread and butter, along with prudential, conduct and consumer protection, to name but a few. However, new challenges and even new disciplines such as ESG are emerging and new risks are coming to the fore, with regulation part of the response to mitigate the risks. Another of these challenges is automation and innovation. And one manifestation of that is artificial intelligence, or another acronym, AI. So for a bit of history and context, Automation and innovation has driven human progress, but now the velocity of change is exponential. AI, in fact, has been around for some time. As far back as 1950, Alan Turing first posed the question, can machines think? In his book, Computing, Machinery and Intelligence. In 1956, John McCarthy at the Dartmouth Conference coined the term artificial intelligence. And a mere 36 years later, an AI system beat the human chess grandmaster in 1992. In 2007, the smartphone was born and with it Siri, Cortana, Alexa, etc. Now we're in the 2020s, AI in financial services has arrived. The EU has introduced a draft comprehensive regulatory framework for AI in the EU as part of a larger AI package designed to protect citizens' fundamental rights for what it calls Europe's digital decade and it aims to promote the uptake of AI while addressing the associated risk. So what does this mean for compliance professionals? So I'm delighted to have with me today, Rachel Finn, Director, Data Protection and Cyber Risk Services, Trilateral Research, and Zachary Goldberg, Ethics Innovation Manager, Trilateral Research. Rachel leads Trilateral's compliance services in data protection, cybersecurity, and responsible AI for over 30 organizations in Ireland, the UK, and internationally. She has been working on identifying data protection, privacy and ethical risks in relation to new technologies for over 15 years and identifying practical solutions for improving compliance and risk mitigation. Rachel has a PhD from the University of Manchester in the UK and is widely published in the area of privacy, innovative data practices and new technologies. Zachary leads work at Trilateral Research, translating ethical principles and ethical standards into practical steps to achieve sustainable impact and responsible innovation. He oversees and carried out both responsible AI services for our public and private sector clients and ethics by design processes for ethical AI products. Zachary has completed his postdoctoral degree in ethics and moral philosophy at Ludwig Maximilians Universität München and PhD in moral philosophy at Arizona State University. Zachary is the author of over 20 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. Recent titles include Translating Ethical Theory into Ethical Action, an Ethic of Responsibility Approach to Value-Oriented Designs, and 
how SMEs ought to operationalize AI risk assessments under the AI Act. So thank you very much, Rachel and Zachary, for talking to me today. Just to begin, I asked Bing AI, what is AI? And for, uh, you know, just a, a, I thought it would be an interesting thought experiment. And it came up with AI stands for artificial intelligence, which is the ability of a computer or computer controlled robot to perform tasks that are usually associated with intelligent beings, such as reasoning, learning, planning, and understanding natural language. So Zachary, could you give our listeners what your definition of AI is? Yeah, sure. And um, thanks, Kathy, for the introduction. And um, we're really happy to be here. And I think the, um, the definition you gave is a fairly reasonable one. And it reflects our ordinary usage of the term. But I also think it's worth noting that current AI isn't really all that intelligent. Uh, yes, it's true that AI can do things we might not have thought possible just a couple of decades ago for a computer to do. But Still, those, those activities, those abilities really pale in comparison to the intelligence of the human mind and really most animal minds. And so when we say that AI performs tasks usually associated with intelligent beings, in a way that is correct, it performs those tasks that have up to now required intelligence to perform. But this performative function doesn't really mean that the tools, these AI tools, in fact, have the capacity to reason and certainly not to understand. So those capacities that we would usually associate with higher intelligence. That being said, AI can really do some tasks faster than humans. And the capacity to collate mass amounts of data to allow for human insight into that data can really have a beneficial impact on society. Rachel, have you anything to add there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that is aligned with how we understand AI when we talk about it, you know, kind of in conversation, you know, whether that be home or at work and, and things like that. You know, I mean, I think what we're really seeing is tools that support things like data analysis or support recommendation systems or support decision making, you know, and, and that. The, the kind of impact of the tool, not the sort of characteristics of the tool itself, but the impact is really what we're seeing when we're looking at things like the regulation that's coming out and how it's being defined in those legislative instruments and things like that. So if you look at, you know, some of the text from the EU AI Act at the moment in its present form, you know, it is talking about things like prediction, recommendation, decision making, but also generation, also content, you know, and, and almost everyone who's talking about AI at the moment is talking about it because of the innovations in generative AI, which is AI that can create content, whether that be written content or images or or different things like that. So, you know, I, I would agree with Zach and I would agree with that definition that it's very much about performing tasks that would have required people previous only a few years ago but you know it's set to innovate further beyond that I would say. And Zachary what use cases are we seeing already in our daily lives? Well you know I, our listeners will notice that we have AI tools everywhere in our lives already in our phones and homes cars planes trains even in outer space where we use satellites for communication or for earth observation in our classrooms right our kids are often using AI tools Doctors' offices have tools to help with diagnoses and in banks as well for lending services and for other activities. And so, you know, really simple use cases coming from those contexts include things like the facial recognition security feature on our mobile phones 
or even just uh, receiving recommendations from a, a music or movie platform. Watching movies or listening to music will receive recommendations based on our past listening or viewing history. And these are all uh, AI tools, some of them quite simple, some of them more complex, but these are all AI tools that are impacting our daily lives. I mean, they're also in our businesses as well. You know, I think increasingly when we apply for a job or we look for insurance, if we apply for a loan, you know, very likely in the background, there's an AI tool that is helping the professional that we're interfacing with make decisions about us based on, you know, historical data on, on good choices. We are seeing it in financial services with, as you say, credit decisioning, even analyzing, scanning and analyzing legal documents. We've seen the proliferation of chatbots, profiling uh, and targeting customers and marketing. We've seen pattern mapping with fraud and money laundering. There's been machine learning software and even in operations and processes in, in back office uh, or operations and settlements um, and again scanning of documents so it's definitely um, it's here in, in financial services. Rachel could you describe for our listeners what the risks and the threats are? Sure I mean with any new technology there's always going to be risks and there's, there's always going to be a need to adjust our practices and our use of the tool to ensure that we you know mitigate those risks. I, mean, I think when we're talking about AI tools and, and especially decision support tools you know some of the main risks that we're talking about are things like bias which leads to discriminatory decision making privacy violations, um, you know, or even a lack of transparency that you're integrating with it or that you're interfacing with an AI tool or how that AI tool has been built, how it's making decisions, etc. You know, especially when you talk about things like discrimination or privacy, you know, these are principal risks because they're going to have an impact on, on people's lives, you know, including a potential negative impact on their life chances and, you know, their ability to access essential goods and services effectively. Yeah. And, I, you know, I agree with Rachel and, you know, some of the examples that we've seen in, say, the banking industry related to discrimination and unfairness go back a long way. We've seen, you know, redlining, uh, where specific areas of a city or county would be excluded from receiving uh, loans or credit due to usually the ethnic background or uh, sex or race of those people, or reverse redlining where um, certain segments of the population were targeted for higher credit rates or uh, you know that sort of unfair lending practice. And as Rachel said, when we have unfair practices in our history, those unfair practices are then reflected in data sets that are then used to train AI models. And so what we're then seeing is really just the proliferation and entrenching of longstanding discriminatory practices, even when, of course, the programmers aren't necessarily trying to continue those practices, right? Most, most programmers are, of course, not malicious people or unethical people. But we're often not aware that those sort of discriminatory practices from our past are still embedded in the data sets that are then used to train new models. And so those very same discriminatory practices are continued. And um, given the, the wide reach of AI, uh, those discriminatory practices are often then expanded because yeah. then these tools are used. And as I mentioned, it's not always known that that discrimination is being included in the data sets or the, the operation of the AI tool. Yes, because it lacks common sense. 
uh, the human touch and insight, and it's not creative. So there are limitations to it and, and there are those risks. And Zachary, could you describe some of the benefits of AI for us? Yeah, well, um, so of course there are some risks that, that we've mentioned, but we wouldn't want to pursue these tools if there weren't significant benefits as well. And as, as we mentioned earlier, the ability to take vast amounts of data and then provide insight into that data, resulting in output that humans otherwise would not have can really help us solve complex societal problems. And we do this at Trilateral. For example, one of the applications that we've developed is called Cesium. And this is a safeguarding application that uses ethically designed AI to identify and prioritize vulnerable children for a, a group of safeguarding organizations who are doing a risk assessment of those children. And, and so this tool allows for the bringing together of a vast amount of data that then these safeguarding organizations can look into and provide better care and better assessments of these vulnerable children. And so this application provides almost real-time analysis and reporting. We've seen almost a 400 increase in resource capacity in validating this tool. And it has identified children who need help uh, have been identified months prior to traditional assessments. And so this is, I think, a nice example of a really complex societal problem, which is the exploitation of children, both in terms of uh, sexually and criminally. A, a lot of data that's available, but in manual traditional methods of assessing that data, things were missed. And by applying AI to this context, we can try to bridge those gaps and provide help to those children. And then design actions to, I don't know, intervene or and head off harm to children. So that's a real, Precisely. that's a, a real tangible uh, benefit of, of AI. What about financial services then? How can it be used in financial services? Well, I mean, I think in financial services, there are a lot of examples of, you know, really being able to, as Zach said, process vast amounts of disparate data sets. We're drowning in data at the moment, you know, and, and everyone has seen those figures around that kind of exponential increase in how much data we ourselves are generating every single year. And so, you know, in financial services, it, it really enables us to, to make use of all that data and analyze all of it, because as human beings, we wouldn't have the capacity to read 17 files for every single decision that we have to make, you know, cover to cover. And so, in the financial services sector, it will improve decision making in relation to credit scoring and loan risks. For if you talk about things like generative AI, it can enhance the customer experience because it'll give customers easier access to more information without necessarily having to read through, you know, complex legal documents and be able to answer questions and in a kind of a natural language way of producing information. It'll also enable things like faster fraud detection, because we'll be able to see earlier that something is anomalous, as opposed to waiting for someone, a human being, to notice that change data pattern. Thanks, Rachel. We've heard a lot, certainly on the news, about AI regulation, the race to put in place AI regulation. So could you just take us through where we're at at the moment in relation to AI regulation? Sure. I mean, different regions are taking different approaches to AI regulation, and, and that's common, you know, across the globe anyway. You know, if we look at things like privacy, that's how it's happened 
as well. In the EU, which is where the most comprehensive regulation is being discussed, you know, the AI Act is is currently in its final stages of negotiation. And, you know, everything that we've been reading is telling us that there's real impetus there to pass this regulation by the end of the year. And so what this regulation will cover is it will require risk assessment for new AI systems. It will require transparency and it will require developers and users to think about our fundamental rights when they build or deploy a system. The nice thing about this is it's going to be a regulation, which means when it comes into force, it's it's going to be across Europe all at the same time. And so people will have, you know, a good understanding of what exactly will be required and when. And so we'll know what the rules are going to be. We'll have time to prepare and, you know, we'll be ready to respond to it. Um, but that's just the EU. There in the U.S., so Rachel mentioned different areas, different regions of the world are responding in different ways. So in the U.S., for example, we're not seeing federal regulation, but we are seeing some cities and states pass regulation, mainly focused at this time on transparency, so bias mitigation, so unfairness, but that's really just a handful of cities and states right now in the U.S. In the U.K., there the situation is also a little different. The U.K. is pursuing an approach that paves the way really for standards to guide the implementation of responsible and trustworthy AI principles. But we've also seen some activities from the government in the UK, there, there was an influential pro-innovation white paper that was published by the UK government back in March of this year. We've also seen some helpful initiatives by uh, UK government offices and centers. So for example, the Center for Data Ethics and Innovation has released an AI assurance portfolio. And what this does is it has collected some exemplary use cases of responsible and trustworthy AI and then it's published this uh, portfolio so that other providers can read about these examples and then try to implement those practices in their own development of tools. And so we're seeing different approaches based on the regions. I think the common element is that we are seeing a census that responsible and trustworthy AI is pivotal to the continuing use and development of AI tools. Yeah, and of course, then that will... Uh, increase the uptake of AI if we can trust it. But in the absence of full regulation, um, what role does ethics play? Well, I, I have to say I like this question, Kathy, because my background is in philosophical ethics. So I'm always happy to see a question like this, uh, hear a question like this. And, and I think, you know, on the one hand, AI ethics really serves as the foundation for much of the current regulations that are being developed and passed. And, you know, Rachel mentioned the EU AI Act. It's ethical principles like fairness and accountability and transparency that constitute the principal content of these regulations. In the context of the EU, it was actually the high-level expert group on AI that was formed about five years ago or so. It defined seven principles for responsible and trustworthy AI and these principles then became, I should say, shaped the requirements um, that are now in the EU AI Act that, that Rachel was just describing. And so there's a direct line of influence from the ethical principles that were defined by this high-level expert group on AI and the principles that were then encoded into the EU AI Act. Zachary, for our listeners, could you just, just take us through what are the seven principles? Yeah, sure. Um, so these seven principles were based on ethics and fundamental rights. And the, the high-level expert group on AI said that 
these principles ought to be met in order to create a trustworthy and uh, responsible AI tool. And, and so the principles are, uh, first of all, human agency and oversight. And what this means is that an AI tool both ought to enhance human decision-making and not replace it. And also there ought to be human oversight of the tool so that, uh, there, that there's a real person who's monitoring and governing both the development and the use of a particular tool. The second principle is technical robustness and safety. And so this focuses on uh, cybersecurity measures and uh, by the safety of the tool, they mean that um, the tool isn't causing any undue harm to anybody. And so this is also mainly a technical approach to ensure that a particular AI tool is robust enough against any sort of cybersecurity attacks and, and will not harm anyone in its use. Uh, the third principle is privacy and data governance. I think that one's uh, probably fairly straightforward. It's, it's based on the GDPR. The, the EU AI Act is um, aligned with the GDPR, and so the two work in tandem together. Transparency is, uh, is one of the most important principles. I often think of transparency as a enabling principle for the other principles, because in order to understand what, what an AI tool is doing, we have to be very clear about uh, what we have done, the decisions that we've taken. We want to communicate that information to uh, affected parties. And, and so uh, by, by making sure we're being transparent about what we're doing in the development of a tool, then um, that helps us realize some of the other principles like um, the next one is fairness and bias mitigation, non-discrimination. So again, to ensure that a, a particular tool is not unfair towards any individual or, or subpopulation. I do think that transparency is really a, an instrumental part of that, that we, that we have enough documentation around the creation of an AI tool such that we can see the data that's been used to train it. We can see whether there are any biases in that data set, and we can try to mitigate those, those biases uh, to, to try to facilitate uh, fairness in the tool. Also, uh, societal and environmental well-being is one of the ethical principles. And so uh, AI developers ought to create tools that either work towards enhancing societal and environmental well-being, or at the very least, not harming that well-being. And, and so it's, it's really nice to see that sort of focus on promoting well-being of both individuals and groups is, is included in this set of principles. And then finally, the, the last principle is accountability. And here the, the high-level expert group means that really anyone that's involved in the, the creation and use of a tool is accountable for their role. And, and so um, it's important to have policies and procedures in place at a product development company to ensure accountability that there are clear avenues of redress. If someone is in fact harmed by a tool or um, there is an unfair outcome by the use of a tool, that that individual or that, those groups can uh, contact the developer and the developer then has a set of policies and procedures in place to remedy uh, the cause of that problem. But also users can be accountable, right? We all use AI tools. And what that means is if we see that a tool has a, um, an adverse outcome, if we, we think that something's unfair, if we think that something is not transparent, 
then we also ought to be responsible to and, and accountable in the sense of notifying the parties who, who can do something about it, whether it's policymakers or the product development company itself, to, uh, to again, try to remedy that problem. Thanks, Zachary. Um, and for anyone who is familiar with the GDPR, as many of our, our listeners will be, um, the, the draft AI Act is, is, is quite familiar. It has, you know, it has very familiar elements it's it's risk-based so it directs you know the the big guns towards high-risk uh, AI systems um, and even the method of enforcement is, is quite familiar um, you know supervisory boards and interestingly the maximum sanction or fine is up to six percent of annual turnover and of course up for GDPR it's four percent of annual turnover which I think reflects the damage that um, a failure in an AI system c- can do um, so, so, so thanks, Zachary. In addition, you know, ethics can also provide best practice beyond regulation. So in addition to what's required, ethics can identify how to make responsible and trustworthy AI beyond those requirements. And so we can ask, you know, not only what are the minimal requirements for fairness, which is what regulations often, often will uh, require companies to do, but we might say, hey, we want to put equity and equality front and center in our development of our product. And so ethics can also move us, not only can they influence the regulations, but they can also move us beyond those regulations when we're looking at best practices that we might want to implement. And then, you know, finally, I would say ethics is a philosophical subdiscipline. And, you know, philosophy has traditionally not been about um, telling people what to think but about how to think and to show us how to think about complex matters. And, and I think, you know, I see it as, as ethics helping us for thinking about how to think about the complexity of AI. And something like fairness is, is difficult. What are the different definitions of fairness? Which definition is applicable to a particular context like financial services, right? There might be definition of fairness that's applicable to education or policing that's different from financial services? How can a product development team evaluate and decide about trade-offs between different principles? Or what kind of hidden biases or proxies might be present in a particular data set? To sum up, I think ethics can help us think about how to think about those questions, even if it doesn't always tell us exactly what to think about those questions. Yes, and I think ethics is really relevant in relation to the ongoing debate around culture, especially in financial services. And if you just want to comply with the law versus want to do the right thing, that will probably be a guiding principle for financial services institutions, um, especially when you think there's huge potential for conflicts of interest, um, building in conflicts of interest in, in AI tools. And there'll be, you know, there will be incentives to to sell. You know, just how, how is that managed when the method of, of selling is a bot or is a robo advisor? So there's so much in this. But uh, Rachel, what does an ethical framework for deploying AI look like at the moment? I think that's also a really good question and something Zach and I have been working on with our colleagues for quite a few years now. One of the things that we've learned is that it actually, you know, takes a village. And I remember having a a very spirited conversation with one of my colleagues a few years ago around GDPR and whether you could call a tool GDPR compliant. There was a consideration around the fact that, well, there's nothing that we've designed into the tool that makes it 
not compliant, right? And from the other side, though, there was an argument around, well, but I can use it for anything I want. And so I can use it for things that are not compliant. And thus, can you make that claim? So what we learned from that really is that you have to take an ethics by design approach when you're building a tool. There are two sides to that coin. So the people who are building the tool have to understand what the potential risks are, what the subject matter is that they're working with very well. They have to understand the ethical principles that people like Zach know very well, the legal requirements, etc. And so we bring all of these people to the design table with our technical experts and take a socio-technical approach to deciding what the tool will do and how it will do it. And this enables the kind of the whole design team to be confident that they're addressing issues like transparency or explainability or fairness and discrimination and things like that. But as I was saying earlier, that's really only half the job because now you have to think about the people who are going to use the tool. So the customers or the users of the tool also have to take responsibility for making sure that they're using the tool ethically because the designers can't control everything, right? So the user has to develop sufficient policies and procedures around how the tool is going to be used by their employees or by customers and things like that, including what they're allowed to do with it and what they're not allowed to do with it. And then the customers and the developers also need to work together to ensure that they're monitoring how the tool is being used regularly. You have to check compliance, as, as your listeners will know very well, with policies and procedures. You'll have to check compliance with legal requirements, but also you have to check that this tool is still functioning correctly, especially as you start adding new data each year based on new customers or new products and services and things like that. The customers have to allow the developers access to the tool and how it's being used to test that the algorithms are still functioning with as little bias as possible, with as much transparency as possible and things like that. So it is very much a partnership approach if you're going to do the best you can to try to ensure that you've got all of your ethical considerations well covered. An experience I had recently, I was giving a paper at a conference on the AI Act and had just gone over some of the recommendations, some of which that Rachel just described in terms of what can companies do to be compliant with the forthcoming AI Act? What are some recommendations for companies to be proactive, getting ready for the AI Act? And after I finished, one of the first questions from the audience was, okay, but how much does it cost to implement these processes and policies? And, you know, I think that if that sort of approach is representative of how companies will respond to implementing these sorts of policies and processes, then they're going to be unsuccessful. And, and one of the reasons for that is that it's short-sighted. Yes, there, there may indeed be an increased cost for including some of the steps that, that Rachel just, just described in terms of you know, establishing policies and procedures around uh, creating or, or purchasing or using a new AI tool in an ethical or responsible or trustworthy way. But this is also part of what is going to look like. And yeah. I think Kathy, you mentioned earlier that having, you know, establishing trust is important for also selling a product and mm -hmm. for having business relationships. And so there are ethical reasons to implement these sorts of policies and procedures. But there's also practical reasons to do so. And, you know, it doesn't do anybody any good to have a tool that ends up violating users' privacy at the end of the day. No, one, no one's going to want to use that. And so 
again, you know, there are different reasons for implementing these policies and procedures and just focusing on the initial increase in costs that it might cause a company is, uh, is short-sighted. And actually, I think, you know, my guess is that companies would do better financially by implementing these sorts of responsible and trustworthy practices. Thanks, Zachary. And if I could venture an answer to that question as to how much it would cost, I would say zero, because I think it was yourself said earlier, you need to bake it in at the beginning. You need to bake privacy, transparency, and all those good principles in from the beginning. And if you do that from the beginning, the cost will be negligible. Maybe not zero, but it will be negligible. And it's all about mindset and again, culture. So um, so next time you're asked that question, you can you can quote me on that. Maybe not exactly, you might want to tweak it a bit. <laughs> that, that's what I would say, it needs to be baked in. What ethical dilemmas could someone designing an AI solution face? So could we see kind of a real life dilemma or illustration of, of what we're talking about here? We've seen um, some of these in the in the past that there are in fact some ethical dilemmas that could be faced. And some of the more common ones are, for example, if you want to train an AI model to be accurate, which is usually something that we want to do, um, we might need a great deal of data to do that, right? The more data, often the more accurate we can make the tool. But of course, to get that data, we need to then think about whether we are in fact adhering to protections of people's privacy and personal data. And so potentially there could be an ethical dilemma between getting sufficient data for an accurate tool and protecting the principle of privacy. Uh, we've also seen a common dilemma or conflict uh, also between accuracy on the one hand and fairness. So traditionally, computer scientists have said that when we have a black box model, a black box model is one where the computer scientists lose track, if you will, and no longer really know how the algorithm is doing what it's doing. And so in that sense, it's a black box. You can't peer into it to see how it's functioning. Traditionally, computer scientists have said that black box models are more accurate than what they call gray box or, or white box models. So those, those kinds of models that you can peer into and see how they're working. The problem there, as probably our listeners can already guess, is um, if we have more accuracy, but we don't see how the algorithm is working, then there might it might be working in an unfair way, or we, and then certainly we wouldn't be able to explain, and explainability is another important ethical principle where we can explain to users both how the algorithm is working and also why they, they want to be using that particular tool. And so if we have a black box model where we can't peer into the algorithm, where we can't understand exactly why and how it's doing what it's doing, Yes, we might have a more accurate model, but we might have a less fair or even uh, completely unexplainable model. And so that might be another dilemma. At the same time, I would say, um, even though there are often conflicts or trade-offs between ethical principles when we're developing a tool, they're not always necessarily dilemmas in the sense that you know, we, we can't do the right thing no matter what we do. I think there will often be hard choices, that's true, but it doesn't mean that we always have to leave out value in the development of a tool. I think it is important to think about these principles to take, Rachel mentioned this earlier, to take a socio-tech approach so that we're understanding the social values that are involved in technological development and that we have an interdisciplinary team of data scientists and ethicists and subject matter experts 
because really that's what it takes, a combination of those perspectives and a discussion around some of these hard choices to move forward with a tool that, that can be ethical, even if, again, there might be trade-offs or hard choices, it doesn't mean we have to always abandon a particular ethical value in the sense that, that I think a true dilemma might force us to do. Thanks, Zachary. And of course, just in relation to explainability, and this is something that our listeners, the, the compliance professionals among our listeners will be acutely aware, you will have to explain it to a regulator at some point. So, so that is something that you know, we really need to keep uh, front of mind because nobody likes to stand in front of a regulator without an answer. That's a really important principle. Rachel, could you take us through how to go about making an ethical decision in relation to AI in a financial services context? Sure. I mean, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think a, a strong starting point, you know, given the kind of some of the historical bias and things associated with the financial services sector historically gives us some clues about how to prioritize ethical decision making going forward. You know, in this context, I think things like fairness, transparency and accessibility are all really important ethical values to have at the front of our minds. It's clear that, you know, when someone was, I was at a conference recently and someone was telling me that their bank had 150 years worth of data. So if you think about how the financial services world looked 150 years ago versus how it looks now, it's quite clear you want to be very careful if you're going to be training algorithms on that historical data. Um, so, you know, again, we know that there is a history of discrimination in the financial services for, for all kinds of reasons, you know, not least things like men being recognized as the head of households and, and things like that. So any decision support tool, any predictive tool, really needs to ensure that people have equal access to essential services like banking, and finance alongside mining that historical data for interesting insights and learnings and, and patterns. We really need to be able to do both. And I think a key part of that is transparency, is making sure that we understand how the algorithm is working and then putting a human in the loop who can say, okay, I can see this algorithm is relying very heavily on postcode, for example, in making this decision. As a human, I'm going to question whether that's relevant in this specific context or not. And if we are able to kind of think about accessibility and fairness, think about transparency and think about the human in the loop, that will really support the professional decision maker to make an ethical decision in the context in which she or he is confronted in that particular moment. And so I think that's where AI tools really can provide strong support is supporting professional decision making. Thanks, Rachel. You know, we, we do have existing regulation. So, so we're not we're not operating in a in a vacuum in relation to, to regulation. We've got the consumer protection code and in Ireland general principles, um, where we have to act honestly, fairly professionally in the best interests of customers and the integrity of the market. We have to avoid conflicts of interest. Um, we have to dis make full disclosure of all relevant information in a way that seeks to inform the customer. So that's that's just consumer protection code. But then if you go into GDPR, um, we've got Article 22 on automated decision making, you know, including profiling. Article 35, which demands a DPIA in certain circumstances, I'm sure AI would, would fall into that. Recycle 71, talking, talking about discrimination. Recycle 71 of GDPR, you know, states that, you know, data controllers must reduce the risk of 
discriminatory effects based on processing of personal data. So that's quite explicit. And GDPR around discrimination. And then, you know, my point earlier around, you know, cost zero, um, I, I, I was being ironic. Article 25 does, it does require data protection by design and by default. So that, that needs to be your starting point. So there's already a regulatory framework there. So for our uh, compliance listeners to contemplate. If I can interrupt for a yeah. second. That's one of the points I always try to make as well is that, you know, don't wait for new regulations. Mm -hmm. Like the time is actually all the tools are there now, you know, and, and all the requirements yes. are there now. So we don't need to wait for AI regulation specifically. I, I think your point is really important. Yeah. And compliance professionals, you know, we, we are used to risk assessing and, and just risk frameworks and the whole concept of, of risk. So, um, you know, we are equipped uh, to look at this, even, even if it's not immediately kind of readily sort of obvious to us, but we, we really do have the skills to look at this. So looking forward, what developments do you think we'll see in AI, in financial services and in AI regulation? I think there's a lot of exciting developments on the horizon. I think it depends how far out we want to look. I think quantum computing is going to make a really big impact on both AI tools and also AI regulation moving forward. Quantum computing is different from traditional computing in the sense that traditional computing relies on bits, ones and zeros, and quantum computing can rely on multiple ones and zeros at any given time. And so you, you would see an exponential improvement in the processing power of computing tools that we're able to integrate quantum capabilities. And I was at the Walton Institute here in Waterford in Ireland a few weeks ago, and they were already talking about use cases where they could use quantum computing to, to, to do fraud detection even more quickly or to identify suspicious transactions even more quickly. And, you know, if you think about that being almost real time, especially when you start to think about things like yeah. anti-money laundering or prevention of terrorist, yeah. you know, transactions that are funding terrorism, yeah. things like that. You know, and you can see screening that as well. Yeah. 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 I think that you can have yeah. that. You could see that would have a really big impact. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, if we're if we're behind on AI tools, you know, I, I would think that speaking from a regulatory perspective, you know, we're probably not ready for quantum tools either yeah yeah we need to get we'll walk before we run yeah on that and Zachary what about you what do you see in addition to what Rachel said I think you know we're seeing the integration of a lot of commonly available tools already I think Kathy you mentioned earlier chatbots we're also now seeing chatbots powered by generative AI uh, to answer customer questions you know we're seeing we're seeing employees in organizations use things like chat GPT and DALL-E these you know, generative or creative AI tools that create new content based on a, a great deal of data that they are ingesting. We're seeing people use those in just their daily jobs. And, you know, that raises a lot of questions. It, it, it provides a lot of opportunities. It uh, can make jobs easier, but it does raise a lot of questions about privacy and confidentiality. We are where that data is coming from, but but we're seeing that in our, in our everyday use of certain tools. And, um, you know, we're also seeing tools that have a higher uh, predictive capacity uh, to analyze risk, for example, or to provide dynamic pricing in the, in the insurance sector, for example. I don't think it, we're not seeing this yet, but it's, it's not too far away where the insurance sector has relied mainly on a sort of detect and repair approach. So like car insurance, for example, you know, after you get in a car accident, then the car insurance does a 
assessment and sends you the check and, and you know, tells you which garage to go to and, and things like that. But as predictive grows in, in these AI tools, I think we'll see more of a movement towards prediction and prevention of accidents. And so we might see things where digital assistants are being used by car insurance companies to provide the safest route to drive. Um, and if a driver decides to take an alternative route, then perhaps their insurance premium automatically goes up and or, you know, right at the at the um, the point of a, of a car accident, a car's internal computer might advise us, take some pictures. Those pictures are maybe maybe sent immediately to a car insurance provider. That provider responds immediately with a mechanic or a garage that we can go to. Our rates are adjusted. And so I think we'll see more real time interaction between um, individuals and insurance, also financial service providers, based on an ability to predict and analyze risk at a much faster and more accurate rate. And then the last thing I would say is I think, you know, we've seen the importance of sustainable activities, eco-friendly and environmentally focused activities. And this is something that belongs to the AI world as well. We can create more sustainable AI and I think as, as we see the impact of climate change now on an almost daily basis, then I think that as we move into the future, the importance of sustainable AI will come more to the, the forefront of, of the kinds of tools we're developing. And something that, you know, Rachel was just talking about quantum computing, comparing quantum computing to generative AI, quantum computing has a, has a much uh, lower carbon footprint and generative AI. I think, you know, our listeners have probably seen some of the articles about the carbon and water footprint from generative AI tools. Um, and quantum computing doesn't have that level of, of footprint. So I think as, as we move forward with um, innovation in this area, um, I, I think, and I also hope that sustainable AI will also um, become really central to the, the new tools and the new innovation that we see in this space. Thanks, Zachary and Rachel. And, ju and just um, in, in, in closing, when I asked Bing to do that um, definition of AI, it actually also very thoughtfully offered to write me a poem on AI. So I'm just going to recite it. It's only six lines long. AI is a wonder of the mind, a tool to make our lives refined. It can learn from data and reason. It can create art in any season. AI is not a threat or foe, but a friend that helps us grow. Now, I'm sure you could probably pull that apart, but I'd also like to say to our listeners that no other AI has been used in the production of this podcast. Just me and the, the definition and the poem. Just to sum up, this has been a really interesting and useful discussion. And I'm very reassured that Zachary started off by saying that uh, AI pales in comparison to the power of the human mind. That, that's very reassuring. It, it does provide insights based on huge amounts of, of data that, that we can't process. You know, the threats include discrimination and privacy. There's a regulatory response, as there nearly always is, to, to these risks. And, and the EU is finalising its regulation. We, we you know, we, we're always interested in what happens in the States and the UK now. Um, and it looks like there's going to be some interesting resources coming out of that. And we need ethics built into the design Phase. So it needs to be, you know, it, it needs to be baked in from the start. So I've really enjoyed this discussion. Um, it's, it's been fascinating. I'm sure we're going to revisit this via podcast and, and, and our other formats at the Compliance Institute, because I do think this is going this is going to land on a compliance professional's desk. Um, so it just remains for me to thank Rachel 
and Zachary for sharing your insights um, and expertise on this important discussion. And thanks to you for listening to the Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the Compliance Institute. I'm sure you find this podcast interesting and useful. And we would be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. And until the next episode, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes. 